Views expressed on this program are those of the sponsors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment Advisor Representative, Cambridge Investment Research Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Indices mentioned are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Asset allocation and diversification strategies cannot assure profit or protect against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Capital Retirement Strategies and Cambridge Investment Research are not affiliated. All right, welcome to Plan for Life Now, the podcast. I am one of your hosts, Steve Gilliani. And I'm the other host, and there are no others besides us. Right, we Dave have no, Murray here. We have no stand-in hosts. We have no substitute <laughs> hosts. We film so, podcast. We might drag Amy or Jen in here once in a while, but I don't think we've done that yet. We haven't had that. We're desperate for podcast material. <laughs> yeah, we can like, actually talk about the behind the scenes at our office. That we're, the, now, at that point, we're assuming the only people who listen to this are clients. Yeah, And I'm sure we have a few other people. There's a handful. Have we're, we broken triple digits yet with our podcast not. listenership? We have not, but we're up in the 70s, 80s each week. All right. It's, well, that's something. You know, feels like you're not just doing it to dead air. Uh, someday we'll advertise the podcast somehow. All right. We'll get there eventually. Uh, but for today, we had just kind of a grab bag of stuff we wanted to talk about. Um, Dave, I know you sent this to me a couple weeks ago, uh, some investment advice from Charlie Munger. Right. This is the good thing about a podcast. We can talk about Charlie Munger. (laughs) And if you've heard of Charlie Munger, then you're probably looking for more detailed things than this podcast. But if you don't know who he is, he is basically, I wouldn't even call him Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He's kind of more like the partner that you never hear from in the Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's been, I don't know how long he's been you know, with, with uh, Warren Buffett, but probably 40-some-odd years. I mean, he's been there for a really long time. And for those that are in the know, and we talked about, actually, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letter. And how people just, you know, their kid gets so excited to read it. It's like Christmas for people in the investment world. Well, Charlie Munger, I mean, doesn't have quite the same following, but it's close. Yeah. I mean, he's he's considered to be, you know, quite brilliant. Um, so on that note, we just pulled a couple of quotes um, that are attributed to him that, you know, thought were interesting or, or relevant to the rest of us out here. And I'm going to include us and the rest of us as not professional (laughs) investors who are sitting there pouring over balance sheets every single day and trying to figure out how to run companies. Um, I always like this one because this is a a trait I admire in people is knowing what you don't know is more useful than being brilliant. Yes. Boy, that is true in not just in investing, but in 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 a lot of things you end up dealing with. I I guess in our business, that would be when we do analogies like, I talk about this sometimes with clients or in seminars, I don't understand cars very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do understand how to put it into D, (laughs) which I hear is for drive, they tell me. But I don't know how to, I, I do know how to 
put the windshield wiper fluid in the blue liquid, That's which I, that gives me an excuse to get the the hormones going and being able to open the hood, which I rarely get to do. And pour the blue liquid in. So you feel, the thing that says windshield wiper fluid. You feel can, pretty manly But doing to put that. this in perspective, I do not know how to change the oil. All right. So that I wouldn't know how to do. And I, you know, would not know how to... So that would be sort of like the <laughs> the investment version of that would be me trying to... You know what? I'm going to go on the internet. I'm going to study up, unquote. And then I'm going to get on that roller thing and go under my car and then change the transmission. And then if some of you are saying you don't change the transmission on that roller thing, well, that shows how much I know about cars. But, yeah, all the car people out there just smacking boy, their foreheads. I, you know, when you run into – you can you can do a lot of research on stuff, and you can mm-hmm. use the internet, but that is not the same. Um, well, and the other analogy that you use a lot is, you know, whenever we're doing a talk saying, hey, listen, all you people out here in the audience, most of you have jobs. Most of you are pretty good at your jobs, and most of us couldn't just read on the internet and pick up how to do your job in a day or two, right? right. I mean, you, you know, we talk to engineers, lawyers, you know, whatever. We don't know how to do that stuff. Um, so, you know, that's why we think that it makes sense, and this has always been my approach in everything, not just the financial world, that you hire somebody who's better at doing that stuff than you are. Um, now that's a whole other topic. How do you hire somebody? What costs and and all of that? Um, but I like that one because I always appreciate that in anyone that I meet. You know how annoying it is when somebody thinks they know everything, and you go, right. "You don't know everything." Um, yeah, I would. I would actually say a tribute. <laughs> if I were interviewing a financial advisor, I would want to know: Do you hire people to do other stuff? Do you have someone who like works on your car? Do you have someone who does these other things that require expertise? Huh, because to me, that would be a negative not to be that way as a financial advisor. Because right. I think a financial advisor who thinks they know it all, let that alone you, be, the consumer, could be very dangerous. That could be dangerous as well. Um, another quote here, mimicking the herd invites regression to the mean. Right? You just kind of say that on the surface. That actually doesn't mean a whole lot to me. I mean, I know technically what he, he's saying, but it's not that powerful. But when you dig into it a little bit more, um, it, let's take a step back and talk about Warren Buffett's stance that he has taken that basically says when he dies, he wants 90% of his money to go into an investment that mimics the S&P 500 index, right? And then the other 10% into cash or treasuries, something like that. And people on one side of things will take that as advocating for those types of investments, saying that is the best way to go. Now, I will often say if Warren Buffett firmly believed that, why does he pick individual stocks? Why does he hire managers in the first place? Right? If he really believes that, why does he have managers on his staff that buy and sell and pick stocks, and why right. does he do it? Right. Well, because I think what he's saying is generally and why speaking, has he been successful over the years? Right, because doing he, it because he doesn't just pick you know an index and that's it. He buys these individual stocks. Um, so it's a little harder to translate to the individual investor. Oh, but, but it's not even just investing because if you were to mimic the herd. 
on my big topic. Oh yeah, long-term care insurance, it's too expensive. Oh, just take me in the back and shoot me, I don't want the The herd, basically on a topic like that, right. is that, and this would be bared in statistics, you know, they did, a, this was a long time ago, they did a survey in the D.C. area, which is the biggest buying area of long-term care insurance. They basically said, if you're 63, by the time you're 63 and you have over $200,000 of liquid net worth, it was done by the insurance industry, we think you should own long-term care insurance. Mm-hmm. So of those of that group, in our area, the biggest buying area, how many people had long-term care insurance? So something like 21%. Nationally, okay. it's more like 12%. Wow. So the herd is basically saying, take me down in the back and shoot me. It's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. You start to dig into the details, though, and yeah, for some of you, it might be too expensive, certainly. For some of you, because of health and other reasons, it doesn't make sense, but you just mimic the herd on something like that, and long-term care insurance was right for you in the long run, as most financial planners and advisors would say, for a lot of people, it does make sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I think mimicking the herd is a huge problem when it comes to investing um, because too often people will sit there and they'll make investment decisions based on what has done well last year, the last two years, or the last three years, whatever. Something that recency effect. And it's been proven that, generally speaking, you pick something that did poorly last year, it's probably going to do better the following year, and you pick something that did really well last year, and it's probably not going to do as well yeah. the next year. Um, Man, this Charlie Munger guy might be on to something with these things. What else does he say? <laughs> All right, so here's the uh, the last big one that, that I really like. Um, it's waiting that helps you as an investor, and a lot of people just can't stand to wait. And this really ties right in with that psychology. Um, But when you look at people who put together a retirement plan, a financial plan, an income plan, whatever it is, right? you put that plan together and then you start to second guess yourself. And you see a year, two years, three years, where maybe your returns aren't quite what you thought they should be or would be. And so now you second guess yourself. And... What I have seen is that a lot of people know, because they're they're intellectual people, they're smart people, they know they're not supposed to make gut reaction changes, right? Not supposed to just see a bad day on the market and change. But now it's gone a year, now it's gone two years, and maybe they've underperformed, now they want to make a change. And they say, I've been patient, I've been patient, I've waited here for a couple of years, I'm going to make a change because this just didn't work, right? Right. Well, <laughs> that's what, what he's talking about here is being patient is not giving in to that feeling, oh my gosh, this just didn't work. I'm going to get out of it. Um, and really, from my perspective, the only way that you can really be patient and stay with a plan that maybe I don't want to say doesn't work, but maybe underperforms for a year or two or even three, is if you know that there's solid evidence, solid data, solid research behind what you're doing. Because if you're shooting from the hip, if you're just putting something together because you read about it on a message board or just you know your buddy at work told you that it was a good idea, no, nah, I wouldn't have a whole lot of confidence that that's going to work you know, over many market cycles. Yeah, and a lot of, again, at least what we try to do is evidence-based 
work. And when you start to look at that with equities, you start to see that these game plans have to be looked at, not from a a one, two, or four, or five year perspective, but more of a ten to fifteen year horizon. Right. And when there's the evidence for those horizons, depending on what you're doing, can be really compelling. But ten to fifteen years is ten to fifteen years. Right. But here's the problem: is you know you say okay, it, t- it could take ten to fifteen years. Let's say that you have the wrong plan in place. You've got the wrong plan. You listen to that guy in the office next to you. You wait 10 or 15 years. Turns out he didn't know what he was talking about. Right. right? You've now waited 10 right. or 15 years. The ship has sailed. It's right. over. Which is what I was talking to you before we did the podcast. Right. This leads right into that point. And that is we've had a pretty good, if you look year to date, I don't care when you're listening to this unless you're listening to it, you know, you all get around to that <laughs> in October of 2017. Well, I don't know what's going on. Six Let's months assume, from now, but we're doing this we'll on get this out before the end of March. Is, March twenty right? first is when we're recording this. You go back year to date, you're going to see a lot of the S and P five hundred. You're going to see the it's small a, cap, the large. You're going to see a lot of up well, with, with equities, mutual sure, funds, ETFs. Year to date, you will, but let's go year over year, even more. So year over year, that's what I meant. Is year over year? My bad. Okay. I meant from like well, hey, March twenty first. Twenty sixteen to March twenty first, twenty seventeen, you're gonna see real high numbers right. for all these indexes. So maybe a barometer in a really good year, mm-hmm. last twelve months, is how are my investments doing that are equity based, let's say a growth mutual fund. Right. How's that doing versus the indexes as a barometer? Am I on the right track? So in other words, if the S and P's up twenty two percent and I'm up twenty percent, right. I'm on the right track. If the S and P's up twenty two percent and I'm in a similar fund that's in the same grouping, and I'm up 3% or down 1% or something like, wow, red flag. Maybe that's a problem. Yeah. And that and might be when you talk about trying to, to means test somehow your plan. Well, and, and that's what I mean. I mean, how do, you, how do you sit there and evaluate a plan to know, is it not working just because you know this year the type of stocks where i was you know say overweighted in the us or overweighted internationally or value versus growth is it just this year it just didn't work but you know like dave said you're up 20 markets up 22 okay or is it just not even in the ballpark right right it's just playing a different game your funds down 2% and the markets up 20 i mean that's you know that's a completely different game and the problem is but make sure they're Equivalent yeah, scenarios. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're not getting, comparing a bond fund versus a right, you know, a growth stock fund. Um, you know, the problem with all of this is that you need to be able to participate in the gains of the market when it's up, because the market goes through stretches of time where it it doesn't do anything. You know, it goes up a little bit, it goes down a little bit, it's kind of chopping around, and you know, end of the day, maybe it's up five percent. But it, it does a whole lot of nothing for most of the year. So when you have these rallies where it goes up, you've got to participate. And this is really where you expose the folly of this idea that I'm going to get back in the market once everything calms down. Right. You know, when people talk about, oh, well, I got out of the market because I saw, you know, XYZ happening. You know, I got out. I was just reading this article and it was you know about some hypothetical investor 
that read an article in 2005, right, by the former Fed chairman, Paul Vacher. Okay. Right? Uh, he was Fed chairman until 1987. I don't know when he started. I think in the late 70s. Right? So obviously, somebody was pretty smart. In this hypothetical example, this investor read this article in 2005 where uh, Mr. Vacher said uh, the market's going to crash. Okay. Right? He said economy is getting overheated. And this hypothetical investor decided to sell all of their stocks, okay. get out of the market. Right. So they missed the subsequent uh, increases in 2006, 2007. Right. right. So, well, you right. know, a little and then bit they of missed the there. Great Recession, too. But, right. So now, they, now they're starting to feel really good because right. they miss the big decline in 2008. Right. But the problem is, when do they get back in? Right. Right. When do they pull the trigger to say, okay, I'm getting back in? I'm going to buy stocks again. Um, and that's why it, it seems so appealing. It seems just great. This idea of we're going to get out of the market, then we'll get back in, but you just can't do it reliably and consistently. Right. Um, you know, I would say if if you're into gambling, if you're into taking chances, I'd feel better about going to Atlantic City and you know taking a chance on the roulette wheel. Right. You got to you know let's say you're going to bet on red or black. What are your odds there? Forty eight percent, something like that. that. You know, as long as you don't get zero or double zero. Um, I think that might be a better odd than than actually trying to time the market, get in, get out, try to figure out the right timing there. Right. Well, now, yeah, I'm not advocating for I that. I know, but I you make a really good point about I hope that. People take I that think as... some people equate the market to gambling. I'm just going to get out now because I have a cold. You know, I wasn't rolling sevens. Right. Okay, that's a that's a fine when you're in Atlantic City and maybe next time you go back to the table you'll roll some sevens. The reality is you got like a whatever 48% chance or whatever. This stuff is more, you're in the right stuff, a right game plan. You look at long-term statistics, and you should feel pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. Short-term, though, now we're back to the roulette the roulette uh, wheel or the craps table. All right. Well, to add on to this, let's introduce another just little, I said this was going to be kind of a grab bag episode, but I think this is a good segue into uh, an article that I saw. You remember our old friend Robert Schiller? Right? Yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have heard of him. He um, he predicted, or he had a well timed prediction, I should say, of the market meltdown in two thousand eight. Right, so he, uh, I think he put out a book or some paper like right before the market melted down. Okay. Now, I will say, a lot of people predicted a market meltdown, but they just did it year after year after year after year after year, and eventually, one of them is going to be right. Right, you know, like the CNBC doom and gloom guy. He right. always has a bad, I mean... A doom and gloom, it's been every, doom. It's usually every other week since 2009. Yep. I mean, eventually he may be right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the expression that, you know, if you stand outside uh, for long enough screaming that it's about to rain, yeah, eventually right. you're going to be right. Well, Robert Schiller didn't do that. He just no. actually <laughs> came out he with didn't this do that. one. Um so it's interesting because now he's coming out and he thinks that the market may be way overpriced, right? So his main, the main thrust of his argument is that this run-up that we've seen after the election here is really overweighting the positives of what might come out of a, a Trump presidency and underweighting 
all of the negatives. And part of the reason why he's saying that's happening is because you had things like um, the European debt crisis in 2010, uh, the debt ceiling in 2011, Brexit in 2016. These were all events that at the time, you know, I know you guys are doing other stuff. You're not all worried about this. At the time, for us and for our clients, whoa, these were potentially huge things. Right. Right. And I remember it always seems like you're traveling whenever these big things happen. So um, you've got a trip coming up in May. I hope I hope do. don't have a big event then. Uh, but especially uh, the timing. Yeah. But um, the whole point is that, that it's sort of like, you know, the boy who cried wolf type of thing where, oh, my gosh, Brexit's going to be it. No, Brexit was not that big of a deal so far. Oh, the, the European debt crisis, the debt ceiling. Now people are kind of. Eh, just letting it roll off of them. Um, so, I mean, once again, that is one opinion on somebody who thinks that the market's way overvalued. Um, he could turn out to be correct. Uh, he could turn out to be, you know, way wrong. We could be going up for another couple of years. Right. Or even if he's correct, think about this in a long-term perspective. Okay, the Trump bump itself is the issue. So that means we're around 21,000 down. Now we go down to 18,000. What are people going to think if we go down 3,000 points in the Dow? Oh, this is it. <clears throat> we're just going down from here. But that could actually just be, okay, that whole Trump bump thing was ridiculous. Right. Because that's something to come true. And then who knows with the economy where maybe from there you, you go past within the next five years, 21,000 around where we are now mm-hmm. to even greater heights. These things are impossible to predict. Yeah, and hopefully you guys get the sense that it, it is not worth your efforts to do that. Um, you're better off being in a long-term, well-diversified portfolio, like we said, based on facts, evidence, research. Um, we think that's the only way to approach it. And to always play out in your financial plan, in your retirement plan, what if you put this plan together and tomorrow is the next big correction? Right. right. Let's play that out. Let's That's the litmus a, test. Let's do a thought experiment here. Um, if you're going to sit there and say, well, gosh, I got a million dollars. I'd be down to $600,000. I think I'm going to throw up. Right? right. I mean, I think I'm going to get physically sick. Right. Hmm. Perhaps that's not the right plan. Right. Um, how are you going to generate income? You know, what kind of money, liquid reserves do you have available? And if you can't answer those questions with a good answer, not just, hey, wait, we'll just ride it out. Right. It'll get better. If you don't have a good answer for that, uh, it's probably time to take a hard look at your plan. All right. Thanks for joining us. We will see you guys next week.